For the last few weeks, we've been in a series of messages entitled uh, Curveball, when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would. And each Sunday, I've been handing out different kinds of Phillies paraphernalia. And today is the last in this series, so I'll be handing out a couple different things. But you know how at baseball games where there's a foul ball and it goes into the stands and everybody lunges for it? Today's your day. Okay? But first, do you like my shirt? You know how when people say to you, Pastor, I thought of you when I saw this and I bought it for you. And I think it would be great if you'd wear it sometime. Okay? I've had comments like, wow, that, that's something. Someone said to me, that's lovely. And I was like, that's not what I was going for. And I still haven't figured out, and maybe you, you know, this for the, the Iron Pigs, which is the AAA baseball team for the Phillies. They're up in um, Lehigh Valley. I don't know what this parrot's about, but somebody told me that maybe it's a woman's shirt. I don't know, but somebody with sharper eyes than me said, hey, Pastor Mark, what's this autograph? To Laura. I'm thinking it's a lady shirt. Just saying. Oh, what side are the buttons on? Oh, they're on the left side? Right, the right side? It's a man's shirt? All right, what man is going to be caught wearing a parakeet? I, I don't know. That just feels weird to me. Anyway, so... Something else, did you know there's a family in our church that the rel- their, their relative is the Philly fanatic? And so I have some Phillies fanatic paraphernalia to give. Now because it's baseball season, the Philly fanatic could not come today. However, once baseball season is over, he may make an appearance in the fall. Okay? So I'm trying to, we're, we're going to try to work that out as best we can. No promises, but. So, if you are under 18, would you just stand right in the center right there, because I'm going to throw out, and I have two Phillies Fanatics personally autographed pitchers, okay? Are, are these the only under 18 group right here? Really? You're all right here? Okay? You're good? All right, now this is for everybody. Everybody, please stand. I'm about to give away two hats. One of them is an autographed hat by the Phillies Fanatic. Okay? And just to make it fair... Where'd it go? 
Wrong way? Okay, I'm going to trust. I see you. I'm going to trust that this gets back to her. And that's why I'm not a pitcher for the Phillies. Okay, you ready? Who has it? Claudia? This is the autographed copy of the Phillies fanatic. Now, this is for two shirts. Two shirts. Okay, you ready? Right here? Here you go. This shirt's yours. You got it? Here it is. This is your shirt. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Would you stand, please? Okay. Psalm 73. Pull out your Bibles. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Psalm 73. As you're turning, let me talk to you a little bit about Psalm 73. Psalm 1 to Psalm 80 are part of a section called the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 81 through Psalm 150 are called the Psalms of Praise. God has given you and I the opportunity to wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum of life, He's given us the verbiage to be able to express our deepest thoughts, desires, hurts, as well as our praises. Psalm 73 is a psalm of lament. And it's written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph was one of the main choir directors under King David. If you were here last week, I talked about um, Horatio Spafford, who wrote the verses, the poetry verses to It Is Well With My Soul. But Philip Bliss was the guy who put the music to it. Asaph is the Philip Bliss of the Old Testament. Understand? So, Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel. For to, for to those whose hearts are pure. And everybody would have said, Amen, right? But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. Why? Because I envied the proud. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seemed to live in such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have any troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat calves, cats have everything that they need. Their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and they speak only evil. In their pride they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused. What does that mean? The people he's referring to are godly people. And the godly people are looking at all of these other people 
whose lives seem so effortless and they're confused and they're dismayed and they're thinking, why do they have it so good? And how come my life isn't like that? They're drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? These are the godly people that are asking, what does God know? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Let all those wicked people enjoying a life of ease while they're... Look at all these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Now I'm going to stop there. A little bit later in the message, I'm going to pick up the rest of the psalm because there are two very definite parts to this psalm. In fact, Psalm 73 is really kind of encapsulating all of the psalms. It begins with lament, but it ends with praise. Just like the first part of Psalms is lament. The second part of Psalms is praise. So let's bow our heads together. Holy Spirit, would you speak very, very clearly to us today and take ancient words from a song writer and someone who is extremely musical and puts these words to song about our own hearts. So would you tap into our own curveballs today that each of us experience and give us a good word? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So what's going on with Asaph? We don't know a whole lot about him. In fact, he wrote 12 of the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. And did you know that Psalms was the prayer book of the Old Testament? So ancient Israel, when they were trying to find verbiage for what they were thinking and feeling, they would always go to the Psalms and they would find, oh, that's exactly what I'm feeling today. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. And they would pray these psalms. And so what's going on, I think, in part in Asaph, though he doesn't fully give us an explanation, is I think he has a physical illness. Whether it's chronic or acute, I think he's really struggling physically. Why do I say that? Because the first part of Psalm 73, he talks about why do the wicked prosper, and he gives some explanation of their kind of life. That He specifically says to them, they're not experiencing any pain. Their bodies are healthy. But in verse 17, he talks about every morning I wake up and I'm in pain. So there seems to be some suggestion that he's super sick. And maybe even, you know, could this lead to death? And so what he's doing is he's pouring out his heart to God. Now, the reason why I want us to look at Psalm 73 today is because it helps us to understand what we should do when we experience the inevitable curveballs of life. 
We've already taken a look at Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes. Most Bible scholars say it was Solomon. That the writer of Ecclesiastes said, at the end of the day, when, when curveballs keep getting thrown at you and life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would, it's most important to keep the conversation going between you and God. In other words, if you're using the baseball metaphor, stay at the plate. Don't walk out of the ballpark. Stay at the plate. Keep swinging, even if you foul it off. Stay talking to God. We see that theme carried over into Job. Job has this ongoing conversation with his friends and with God talking about what's going on with him. But at the end of the day, Job teaches us this extremely valuable lesson that all of us need to take to heart. And that is this. God's probably not going to explain to you to your satisfaction why these bad things have ever happened to you. But what God is really looking for in your life is to come to a childlike faith to be able to say, whether I ever get my answers or not, whether I ever understand of why God has allowed this happen or not, whether good things happen to me, whether bad things happen to me, I'm going to trust a loving God who sees the big picture better than me. That's what Job is all about. So when we get to Psalms, there is sort of the same message, keep the conversation going with God, but he shares with us some other things that we ought to tuck away when we get in times where we don't understand what's going on. So there's three things I want to point out to you this morning that you and I can take away from Asaph in Psalm 73. The first is, God is really saying through Psalm 73, it's okay to be sad, you just can't get stuck there. It's okay to be sad, you just can't get stuck there. I've given you 89 psalms, God is saying, to lament. So in other words, it's okay to lament. Now here's what I think is happening in our culture right now. We have an obsession with darkness and death. We also have an overfocus on happiness and fulfillment. We are living in a culture of extremes right now. And so what's taking place over in this darkness and this, this death environment is, is that suicide is going through the roof when it comes to um, teens and young adults. And there is an obsession with death. Okay, what does that mean? Have you noticed over the last 20 years the rise of dystopian societies? Uh, what is that? Dystopian societies are the Hunger Games, Divergent, The Matrix, The Book of Eli, Mad Max. In other words, Hollywood is producing a tremendous amount of movies really highlighting dystopian cultures. What's a dystopian culture? It's where everything is right that should be wrong and everything is wrong that should be right. It's a completely oppressive culture in which everything that you think would be normal is not normal. There's an obsession with these kinds of movies. And there's also an obsession with darkness and death when it comes to popular music. Now, opposed to that is this over-focus on happiness and fulfillment. I mean, who doesn't want to be happy? Who doesn't want to be fulfilled? I totally get it. I want that too. But when you over-focus 
on happiness and fulfillment, you end up at a place that you don't want to be. So, if you're too focused on death and darkness, you end up in moroseville, being morose, you're depressed all the time. But if you end up over here, you're actually detached from reality. There are many people that are actually afraid to acknowledge that they're not having a great day. Because our culture is really focusing on happy, happy, happy all the time. And if you're not happy as a Christian, something may be wrong with you. And if you're lamenting as a Christian, something may be wrong with you. If you're depressed as a Christian, there may be something wrong with you. No, that's not the case at all. God has placed the Psalms of Lament for us so that we get the verbiage to say, I don't have to fake it. Because we all go through seasons of lament. I want to say to you today that it's okay to be sad if you're going through or have gone through some really bad times. It's okay. You just can't stay stuck there. Well, the question really becomes, how do you get unstuck? And the answer is to create your own lament psalm. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, let me suggest to you that you should find a quiet place with God and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Take your time and just begin with, I'm here in God's presence. Second, Write out, preferably, you can pray it, but it's better if you write it out. Ask God the hard questions and don't hold anything back. Be completely honest. He can take it. Thirdly, offer these things to God as a sacrifice to Him, but don't ask anything from Him. Just say, God, here they are. I'm offering these to you. And then lastly, worship God by completing the phrase, though these things have happened, yet. Worshiping God is a series of yet statements. Bless and praise Him in spite of the difficult things. So for example, Job said, though you slay me, still will I trust in you. So let me give you some those statements. Though I may never get the job that I want or feel fulfilled in, yet I will still trust and worship you. Though my spouse may never really get me or appreciate me, I will still trust and worship you, O God. Though I may never get married again, I will still trust and worship you. Though my finances may never improve to the place where I want them to, I will still trust in you. And worship you. Though my family may never get back together, I will still trust and worship you. So, I read an article this week written by neuroscientists about the keys to happiness. You know what the first key is? Tell someone your sadness. Because getting it on the table and naming it is powerful. You know what Asaph is doing? He's giving you a bridge. And the bridge is 
the place to happiness and fulfillment is by admitting your sadness and owning it and naming it. Don't stay there, but start there and allow God to move you to another place. So if you're going to accept the inevitable curveballs of life and try to figure out how to make your way through it, it's, it's just giving permission to say it's okay to be sad. Some of you are afraid to let down and admit you're depressed. If you can't admit it, it stays longer and it goes deeper. The first rule of counseling is if you're depressed, the quicker you embrace it and own it, the shorter it will be and the less depth it will be. The longer it takes you to admit it, the longer it goes and the deeper it gets. Own it. And that's the first step of working your way out of it. Two, if you're going to deal with the inevitable curveballs of life, you're going to have to stop comparing yourself to other people because doing so is not helpful. It's a killer. For I envied the proud, verses 3 through 5 said, when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives, they don't have trouble like other people. Albert Einstein said many things. I got a chuckle this week when I read something that he had said. Everybody is a genius, Albert Einstein said. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it's stupid. If you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it was stupid. You know what comparison does? Comparison eats away at your identity. And it's a no-win situation. So, um, three, three reasons why comparison is not helpful. Three reasons why you shouldn't compare yourself to other people. The first is, we usually make assumptions that are not accurate about the people that we're comparing ourselves to. Asaph is looking at these wealthy people these powerful people, these prideful people, and he's thinking, they have it all made. But do they really have it all made? All you need to do is to do a quick study on Wikipedia of the lifestyles of really rich and famous people, and you will see that they endured unbelievable tragedy and failure. There's a movie that was out a few weeks ago. I was trying to think whether I, I saw it or not, and then I realized it did. And then I was trying to think whether I should recommend it or not, and I'm not sure I can. You got that? All the Money in the World. That's the name of the movie. And it's the true story of J. Paul Getty, the richest man in the world, who wouldn't pay a ransom for his grandson who was taken hostage. And it's really the story of the obsession of J. Paul Getty, who was living in England at the time, living in this massive place. But he installed a payphone for his guests so he wouldn't have to pay for their phone calls. Even his own daughter-in-law that came to visit him, to ask for him to help pay the ransom, the servant is standing there feeding her quarters. 
or no, dimes at the time, dimes that she could make phone calls to other people so she could get help. What I'm trying to say to you is that the way envy or comparison works is that when we look at other people, we create a false fantasy of those other people, and we think that they have it made, but if we dig below the surface, we realize they don't have it made at all. I pastored a man many years ago who, in upstate Pennsylvania, he owned his own coal mine back in the 40s and 50s. And he made a lot of money. And from the outside, he and his wife looked like they had it made. I mean, they were, they were, they, they were modest people, but you could tell that they had money. And they had four boys, and they'd invite us. They treated us like family. They invited us over to their house on holidays, and we would just enjoy being part of family picnics. And I used to think, man, these guys don't have a care in the world. He made his money, and he's got a great family, and he's got great health, and everything's going great. Until we really began to get to know each other as friends. And you know what he said? He said, I could write a book on all the tragedy my wife and I have faced. And then he drilled down a little bit deeper and talked about his four boys that sort of can't get along because one thinks that one's going to get more than the other when mom and dad die. And every time mom and dad give X amount of dollars to help somebody build a house, everybody's taking a calculation. That's part of your inheritance. And he goes, I raised four boys. They all go to church, but they can't get along. And I thought to myself, how tragic. On the outside, everything looks great, but you drill down a little bit deeper, and he could write a book. Hey, some of you are like that. Some of you look great on the outside, but that doesn't mean that you're tragedy-free. And somebody else is comparing themselves to you, thinking, oh, if I could only be like... And you're thinking, oh, pick somebody else. The second reason that comparison never works is because when we compare ourselves to other people, we usually do it to the best of other people. And what I mean by that is, is that if you compare yourself to five different people, you usually compare yourself to the best of those five different people. And nobody can be the best of five people. Ladies, let me just give you an observation. We raised two girls. Um, my, my wife, she's a girl. And here's what I've discovered is that the big issue in America is body image. And so women are forever comparing themselves to the best in other women. And they'll find a flaw in themselves and obsess about that flaw. You'll see somebody at church or at work that, oh, she has such porcelain skin. Oh, my skin isn't like that. My skin is terrible. I've got to go to Ulta. You know what I'm saying? And we look at body image and, oh, my hips and, oh, this and that. And you know what? If you compare yourself to five women, you'll never make it. But guess what? If those ladies compared themselves to other five women, they'd never make it either. We have a tendency to pick out in other people the very best, and you can never live up to that standard. You know, men do the same thing. 
Oh, I don't have a car like he has. Oh, I don't have a job like he has. Oh, I thought I'd be further down. And we just compare ourselves. And then we get to the emotional level, which is the real damage. Oh, I don't have a marriage like them. Oh, my kids didn't turn out like their kids. And before you know it, you're just as unhappy and miserable as what you've ever been. Can I just remind you, you cannot be the best of five different people. But you can accept your own flaws and accept your identity in Christ and relax and be okay. Third reason why comparison is a no-win situation is because it's a sin. And you know what sins are? Sins are transgressions against God, but from God's perspective, God is saying, those things are killing you. That's why I said no to them. Envy is a resentful longing aroused by other people's stuff. And it makes you miserable. And that's why God says to you, stop, don't go there. Because if you envy, you'll never be happy. Number three. The first one is, it's okay to be sad. The second one is, stop comparing yourself to other people. The third is, come to church as much as you can. Verse 17, then I went into the sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. What what is Asaph saying? He's saying that when he finally came to a worship service, his whole perspective was reset. I think it's universally true that when we experience really difficult times, we have a tendency to withdraw. We pull back. We, we use phrases like, I'm just licking my wounds for a while. I need an, a, an emotional health day. But at just the time when life is hitting us hard, when we feel like pulling back, everything inside of us doesn't want to engage in worship and engage with other people who are maybe happy, that's the exact moment that Asaph says we ought to be leaning forward and doing the very thing that we don't want to do, and that is coming to worship the Lord and hanging out with His people. And what Asaph said is there's three things that happen when you really engage in heartfelt worship, the first is worship resets your perspective about life. Can I remind you that you're getting thousands, me too, we're getting tens of thousands of messages every single day and week about what you should value, what you should buy, what you should think about yourself, and they're coming at us with a gale force wind. And so much of it happens to us on an unconscious level that we're just absorbing the world indiscriminately, not even thinking about it. And before you know it, we're thinking exactly like the world. We're valuing exactly what the world says. We're thinking about ourselves exactly what the world says about ourselves. And we want exactly what the world wants. The world is going to hell. You get that? And so what is worship? Worship is the great reset of what is most important in life. And what is most important in life? Your relationship with Jesus. That's it. Your relationship with Jesus. I was 12 years old 
when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was at a camp. I'd been raised and going to church. Good grief. I was going to church, you know, when there was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night church, when revivals were two weeks long, and my parents would dress me in pajamas because the revivals lasted. The preacher would preach for an hour and a half, for crying out loud. What was wrong with him? God's little joke. And so my parents would lift me out of the car at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night and then put me in bed, and then we'd do it all over again for two weeks. But i got to tell you something. It wasn't until I was 12 years old at a camp that for the first time in my life something stirred in my heart, and this little voice said to me, you know me, but you don't really know me. You get it? I knew about God but I didn't really know God. And I went to an altar, and I gave my life to Christ, and from that moment on, though I have not always been faithful to the Lord, from that moment on, God has never left me. And the most important relationship of my life is Jesus Christ. My wife is here. She's sitting right over there. We've been married for 34 years. I love her to death. But she's here under the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I've discovered. When Jesus is first and foremost, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better grandfather. I'm a better person. That's all that to say this. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. The most important thing in your life is not your career. It is not even your family. The most important thing in your life is Jesus Christ and His Spirit living inside of you. Jesus said to the woman at the well that He had living water that would quench her thirst forever and it would be like a bubbling spring inside of her leading to eternal life. And she said to Him, Oh, give me some of that water. What was Jesus referring to? He was referring to himself and ultimately to the Holy Spirit when he left and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. May I suggest to you that some of you, because of the curveballs of life, because of just living life in this tsunami of busyness, some of you are bone dry spiritually. And what you really need is a fresh encounter. I came back from Israel several weeks ago and I came back sick. First time that ever happened, I had a bacterial infection, and we came back, I think, on a Saturday or a Friday night Saturday, and I had to preach on Sunday, and Sunday afternoon, I immediately went to Doylestown Hospital, I ended up in the emergency room, and when I walked in, I was having a hard time breathing, and they were thinking, I mean, you ever see the emergency room light up? They were thinking I was having a heart attack. I was... <laughs> and they said to me, you're bone dry. You are completely dehydrated. You have nothing left. And they hooked me up to an IV and fed me three bags. And then I stopped panting. And they said, we got to fill you back up with fluids. And by Wednesday, I was feeling good. Some of you are bone dry. Spiritually. And you need a fresh encounter with God and a reset from your perspective on life. 
The second thing that happens when we really worship God in spite of the curveballs is we get a fresh reset on ourselves. Look at what it says here. The chapter... Verse 21. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and arrogant and ignorant I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. You, you know what happened when Asaph was worshiping? Like in a worship service like this, you know what happened to him? He really began to see himself as he really was. You know what happens when curveballs get thrown at us? We lapse into self-pity and self-righteousness. Both say, I don't deserve that. I was just minding my own business. I, didn't, I, I don't deserve what's happening to me. I'm a good person. But when you're in God's presence, God's white light of holiness has a way of shining on us and pointing out goofy things and bad things and faults and failures and sins. Am I the only one who's been worshiping the Lord on occasion and... Then the Holy Spirit says, you, you were a little harsh speaking to your kids. Or you shouldn't have said that unkind word to your wife. There have been several times through the years that I've had to go to Holly, either in between services or at the beginning or at the end of a service and say, I was an idiot today. I don't know why I said what I said, but I know I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. And of course, she's always faithful to forgive me and remind me that she knew who she married. You know, John Wesley, the father of Methodism, said that whenever he was really worshiping God, he always was moved to confess his sin. I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, you're not perfect. And you still have stuff in your life that when you worship God in his holiness, you're brought low and you realize you're not all that. And James chapter 5 says that we ought to confess our sins one to another and thus receive a healing. That doesn't mean you stand up and you just say, okay, I did this and I did this, you know, publicly. It does mean you find one or two trusted people and you say, hey, this, this is where I'm at. This is what I've done. This is what I'm struggling with. And in doing that, that other person reassures you that you're loved by God and that there's no sin too great that God can't forgive you. You know, for some of you, the best thing you could do today is to just be honest with yourself and admit the things that are in your life that you don't want to admit and just come clean and say, yeah, I'm struggling with this. Yeah, I've done this. Yeah, this is a sin in my life. Yeah, this is a besetting sin of addiction of whatever that is that I'm struggling with. And God doesn't do that to shame you or to embarrass you. God does that because that's the safest route back to healing three god resets in worship your perspective on himself look at verses 23 and 24 right after he says asaph says my heart was bitter verse 23 yet i still belong to you 
You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. You know what real worship does? It reminds us that God loves you and will never, ever leave you in spite of your imperfections. Worship reminds you that the battle is not yours alone, it belongs to the Lord. That when you have a true heartfelt relationship with the Lord, you can put your hand in the hand of the God who made the universe and you can go into that curveball tragedy or that disappointment or that loneliness and you can say, we're going to deal with this together. You are not walking alone. Worship reminds us your struggles may not be easy. They may not be short-lived. But victory is on the other side of the battle. May I suggest to you that some of you are only one good lament away from a breakthrough in going to a whole new place with God, with your family, in your walk with other people. Worship reminds us that God is good even when circumstances are darker than you imagine. God is still good. And worship reminds you that God is good at being God. If you were here last week, told the story of the virtual tour that God took Job on of the complexities of the universe. Some of us just need to be reminded that God is good at being God, and you're not. God is still good to the core in spite of bad things that are happening. And you can worship Him. All that comes as a reset if you will come to church and worship Him with a full and open heart even though you don't know certain things. Even yet, this isn't turning out. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And the worship team is going to lead us in a closing worship song. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you with a full and open heart, in spite of whatever challenges you're facing, whatever is ruminating in your mind, your finances, your marriage, you know, your education, your health, whatever, I'm asking you to just lay that down and say, God, I'm still going to worship you no matter what. And in doing so, God begins a healing process. You. Let's worship the Lord together. You give life, you are love, you bring. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we worship you with everything that is in us today. We know that you are for us, not against us, that you are good to the core. And because of these curveballs in life that keep getting thrown at us and we're not exactly sure, we're disoriented sometimes, we can trust you. And we give you praise and we're asking you to change our perspective today. 
on life and what we ought to expect out of life, on ourselves to be able to be accurate and honest and see ourselves as we really are, but most of all to see you as you are, high and lifted up, way above us, and yet through Jesus and the Holy Spirit you live in our hearts. And life bubbles up inside of us that cannot keep us down because of your Spirit. So help us to go today and this week with a mindset of victory and a positive mindset that says, yes, although, yes, in spite of, but I will trust the goodness of God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All God's people said, God bless you.